Hello, Managing Madrid listeners. It is Friday. Yet another Managing Madrid podcast in your RSS feed. This is your host, Kian Sobani. Today's uh, mailbag edition of the Managing Madrid podcast is going to be broken down into two parts. Part one, Ryan O'Hanlon, um, awesome, awesome writer, um, really good analytics guide, has a great Substack newsletter and column, formerly of The Ringer, does work for ESPN. He was on part one to answer questions about analytics, uh, about Pogba. We talked a bit about Fernando Torres retiring in some of his moments. Um, and unfortunately, some of the damage he did uh, against Real Madrid. And then part two, myself, Matt Wiltsey, and Gabe Lazar, we take more questions. Um, we go into some more analytics stuff. We talk about some more Marcos Llorente lingering um, things just kind of after the math. Uh, Raul as a Castilla manager, what that's going to look like, and, uh, and a bunch of other things. So stick around till the end. It's a fun show. Really had fun recording this one from start to finish. Uh, quick shout out to our patrons, patreon.com slash managing Madrid. Uh, if you're not a patron, you're missing a ton of additional content and guaranteed responses to your questions. Yesterday, we published our emergency Urante podcast, which Omarvin and I went into such great detail about so many different things. Um, beyond Llorente and the dominoes and the midfield signings and what the minute distribution will look like next season. So that's on patreon.com slash managing Madrid. And before we start, we want to give a shout out to our $10 plus patrons because they get a specific shout out on the podcast as one of their many rewards. So shout out to Mikhail Nilsson, Frederick Sundros, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Nick Stefani, Adam Dorsey, Frederick Rantakiro, Leon Savernakis, Christian Gonzalez, Bjorn Salvador, Essa Hariri, Sergio Monleon, Elian Zacco, Yahya Ibrahim, Willie Reed, Nick Ribeiro, Eric Rogers, Sad Omar, Sheikh Atiri, Ole Wapamimo, Ole Dunjoy, Patrick Odayafari, Christian Toff, Dan Berthy, Armin Gashi, Tarek Sphere, Kunal Tilakar, Marin Myrtle, Tyler Dixon, Raghav Potluri, Vicky Cohen, Gary Kohut, Sujaiwani, Peña Maradista, San Francisco Bay Area, Brennan Stevens, Casper Moscala, Catherine Fagundo, Vinod Baratula, Zoran Bosancic, Sway Ayala, Crystal Glass, Rafael Servia, Yihin Liang, Karen Scherer, Somanchu Singh, Brendan Powers, Umar Mahadi, Ravi Tahiev, Amy L, Shabab Sharapov, uh, Shabazz Sharapov, sorry, Fabian Moreno, Varun, Magnus Lex, Jason Fitz, Anton Hackberg, and Solomon Ortiz, thank you guys for your support. We love you lots. And without further ado, this is the Managing Madrid Podcast, part one with Ryan O'Hanlon. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. They're wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Okay, welcome to part one of today's Managing Madrid podcast. It is Friday, and uh, the dust over the Marcos Llorente sale has settled, and it's time to just resume our normal segments. We're going to talk. Um, we're going to take some questions from our patrons. We're going to um, delve into a bunch of different stuff, including analytics. And joining me to answer this part of the mailbag is the one and only Ryan O'Hanlon, um, writer. He's an editor formerly of The Ringer and currently um, No Grass in the Clouds, 
it's his uh, it's his soccer newsletter, which he writes content for regularly. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I think it's uh, it's really cool that a Real Madrid podcast is uh, going to devote an entire segment to praising Fernando Torres's career on the day of his retirement. Oh, geez. Yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> I, actually, I think Fernando Torres has a very um, high place in Real Madrid. Like in terms of like non Real Madrid players who played for Atletico, just for the sole fact that his goal against Barcelona when when he was with Chelsea is like completely <laughs> immortalized to us. That's a good point. I I hadn't, I hadn't thought of it that way. Well, you're That's a Liverpool really- fan. I mean, so how did you feel when you saw that retirement news? Because I was actually someone had posted a video of all his best goals for Liverpool, and it just took me back. Like this guy was actually just incredible before he moved to Chelsea. Yeah, it's he, he um, someone posted this on Twitter, his, so his peak, his three-year peak, he averaged uh, more non-penalty goals per 90 minutes over a three-year span than basically every good striker in the history of the Premier League. Hmm. Um, he's, you know, he, he was, his rate is higher than what Salah averaged in his first two years. So it's like I'd, I'd forgotten just how kind of high his peak is, and I think it's um, it's been easy to forget that just because the Chelsea stretch. I know, as you just said, for Real Madrid fans, it was glorious, I guess, <laughs> but it was pretty de- depressing. And then you know his stretches at uh, Atletico and AC Milan, he was just uh, such a like shell of himself physically, mm. you know. Yeah, that um, it was you know it's nice to be reminded and see those highlights where he was basically like the definition of unplayable. Um, well, I don't know if you're a Real Madrid fan or sorry Liverpool fan um, at, at the time, <laughs> um, but I believe I think it was was it 2009 that Liverpool beat Real Madrid five nil on aggregate, and then they had that four nil at Anfield, and I just remember Torres Gerard. Like those two absolutely just annihilated us, and like I by the end of it, I was in the fetal position, just on the ground, and it was one of the worst, like lowest moments as a Real Madrid fan. And um, so, like I we we kind of saw it not firsthand, not only with his Atletico days, but that Liverpool when he uh, when he was at his peak there, he really stuck it to us. Yeah, the the two of them were like, it's hard to think of. Um kind of a, an attacking pairing that were like as physically dominant mm-hmm. as the two of them. Um, yeah. But, you know, it also reminds me of like that same season, Liverpool beat Manchester United twice and then Manchester United still won the Premier League mm-hmm. um, ahead of Liverpool. <laughs> so as a neurotic, uh, you know, nihilistic fan, that's actually what my mind goes to when you, when you talk about the two of them. <laughs> So uh, we before uh, before uh, well I guess when I when I got con- confirmation from you that this was happening I put out a call to our patrons that you were coming on and we got some analytic stuff geared towards you um, some some things directed towards you that I don't actually understand but once I read it to you you'll probably get it um, so yeah. the first patron question we have is from Matthias Ra- uh, Rabber he says I got an analytics question for Ryan. Is there or will there be any discrete metrics to measure the positional performance of players without the ball? Like how good they defend spaces or how good, active, efficient their positioning is in build-up or in the final third? 
So, um, I think my answer is going <laughs> to upset everyone who listens to this podcast, but um, there was a paper that was written uh, in 2018 by this guy, Luke Bourne, who is currently the VP of basketball strategy, I believe, with the Sacramento Kings, and he used to be the director of analytics for uh, Roma, the, the soccer team. And it was written with uh, this guy, Javier, Javi Fernandez, who's an analyst with Barcelona. Um, and the paper is literally called Wide Open Spaces, a technique, a statistical technique for measuring space, space creation in professional soccer. Okay. Um, and so basically what they do is kind of um, they put a value on every part of the field based on like how valuable it is to be in that part of the field. So, you know, a defender sort of occupying space at the top of his box while his team has the ball. That's, you know, that's not, that's bad positioning, you know? Um, Interesting. And basically what they found is that uh, Messi is like world class when it comes to standing in high value spaces, which is kind of funny because, I don't know if you guys remember at the 2014 World Cup, a lot of people were criticizing him for walking um, during games. But what this paper found is that he's actually occupying these extremely important spaces. Hmm. um, And that's why he's not moving in addition to potentially, um, you know, uh, conserving energy. And then the other player that kind of comes out really well in the space creation paper is uh, Sergio Busquets, both from his kind of, subtle movements, creating space for other people. And then him, um, kind of occupying all of these, uh, you know, he, he's able to find open space in the middle of the field in a way that you just shouldn't be able to, because the middle of the field is supposed to be, um, where everyone is. So basically this paper has been written. And I think that, you know, uh, the concept of space and how you create it and how you occupy it, is sort of the most important thing in soccer. <laughs> and it's the thing that um, I kind of think is most lacking probably in a kind of large scale analytic sense. But I think this paper is kind of like a, it provides a way forward of where I think things are going to go. That's really interesting. So like when I saw this question, what I immediately went, the thought I had wasn't even what you mentioned, which was, which was fascinating, was just that, you know, in terms of like, depressing um where to be off the ball defensively but then when your Mm -hmm. team has the ball knowing where to be that's a whole different equation altogether and so like how do you because a lot of that stuff to me is situational so like if you if you outline like okay this area is where you want to be i mean in terms of just cutting up the pitch and just making squares and saying this is the space i don't know if it works like that it's like so obviously like a lot of it is situational like depending on the team shape, where where your team has the ball, um, where where the defense is lined up. So how do they even measure that? Is it just basically they measure the space that's, you know, between them and another player? How do they how do they figure that out? Do you so know? You're both measuring the space, but it also is kind of, again, this is like, <laughs> you know, I, I think I'm someone who uses analytics and data in my writing, um, but I'm not <laughs> someone who, like, builds models and stuff right i like get a headache every time i open up a spreadsheet um so the paper it puts the value kind of on 
every area on the field, but then it also the values are fluid based on where the defense is, you know? So it takes into account all the situational factors. So if like there's four defenders sort of clogging an area, being in that space is actually maybe not that useful because it's being a one attacker surrounded by four defenders, like doesn't accomplish as much. So it does actually take into account in a way that is completely over my head. And I would, I, would just do a disservice to the paper to try to explain the kind of data collection, but it does take into account um, the locations of the opposing players. Um, well, like overcome the, the situational stuff. I feel that way sometimes with, um, with the ELO ratings. Cause I, cause I know you plug in the ELO ratings in, in a lot of your articles. And every time I look at one of those graphs or I open up their website, I almost like have a seizure cause I don't understand how to read it. Like it's so, <laughs> there's just so much going on in it and that I just, I can, I'd much rather prefer like if someone just told me like the list of ELO ratings, like where every team ranks and then, but if I have to yeah. read, physically read that chart, I can't, it's, it's I can't do it. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. tough. Cause you want to like, you want your, a lot of these concepts in soccer are extremely complex. Even just this idea of space, you know, it involves uh, like physics. Um, and, but you want it to also be digestible by the wider public, I think. Um, so like getting them to trust your methodology is difficult because the methodology by definition has to be really complex. You know, yeah. Um, so I think that that's kind of like kind of a recurring problem and it's, uh, you know, they can spit out kind of just numbers that kind of rank everyone, but, um, it's, it's hard to explain succinctly like what goes into those numbers. Elian Zacco says, how are expected points calculated and how does Zidane measure up to other coaches according to analytics in general? So expected points is, I think it's like a, it's a semi, not controversial, but it's not like a widely cited statistic, but you can find it on this um, website uh, called understat.com, which is sort of the only place on the internet that is public publishing publicly expected goals and other underlying numbers. So basically the difference between like looking at a team's expected goal differential for a season versus their expected points in a season is that, Expected goal differential is just you add up all the chances you got via expected goals, and then you add up all the chances you conceded via expected goals, and then you you know figure out the differential. But expected points takes into account. So it, say you give up um, oh, 0.5 expected goals worth of chances in a game, and your team creates, let's say, 1.75 or something like that. It applies that to the game and kind of runs all these probabilities and figures out what percentage of the time you would win the game based on just that individual game. And then it awards you points based on the probability. So it's again, I'm getting into the weeds here, but you know, say you're, if you're even on expected goals in a game, but you win, right? Mm-hmm. you would only be expected to win that game one third of the time, right? Because uh, 
you know, you are left probably less than one third of the time because it draws most likely, and then you would split the victory probability to both teams. Right. So you would only like so say you were say let's say it was one third of the time you you're expected to win get a point or expected to win you would then take one third of three points so you would only get one expected point mm. but say it's 75% of the time you would get 75% of three points added to your expected point total so basically the difference is it takes into account each individual game so you know if you're if you have two games where you win by a significant number of, or have a significantly higher number of expected goals, um, you could end up with close to six expected points. But if you have one game where you just totally destroy a team and then a, a close second game, um, you could have a better expected goal differential from those two games, but you could have lower expected points because you can't get more than three expected points, you know? Um, but for the second game, um, you wouldn't get as much because your margin wasn't as um, high as the two games in the other um, example. Does that make, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I, um, I think um, just, I was, I was thinking, I was just thinking also about how, you know, the second part of the question is how is he then, um, measures up in terms of other coaches. I mean, yeah, disregarding this year's sample size, which was kind of a joke. Um, like you, re- I really have no idea how much to take from it because he took over a broken team and just started experimenting every game. But if you, I think what's staggering about Real Madrid's run last season is that I'm looking at it now on Understat. Um, of the top six teams in La Liga last season, Real Madrid were the only team to overperform. Um, or sorry, underperform their expected points, which is almost weird because like they maybe they were actually even worse somehow than they actually turned out to be, even despite being like seventeen points behind. And you look at Barcelona's expected points last season; it was seventy nine, and they ended up with ninety three points. Um, and like we're gonna get into this a little bit, but I I think it's always. Because some, some people think I, as a Real Madrid fan, I defend Barcelona a little bit too much. And I, I think, like, it's just incredible to me that they just show up and win and they figure it out how to get it done. Like, there's, it's almost, like, amazing to me. Like, all of last season, a lot of this season, every time, like, after we're talking about like, post-matches of Barcelona, we're talking about how shitty they were. <laughs> like, how they just scraped by. How Messi just took over or whatever. Um, but it's like, at some point, when you have that conversation after, after like, every game, then it has to be something there. And I just, I just, I, I didn't literally, I just saw it now. I can't believe that Ram just somehow underperformed their expected points. That it's funny to hear, it's funny for me to hear you say that because everything you're saying about, you know, Barcelona finds a way to win and their best player takes over games. I feel like is exactly how everyone talks about the Real Madrid uh, Champions League run. Yeah. Um, we had it really bad last like, year with all that. Like nobody thought we deserved that title last season. Not Bayern fans, not Liverpool fans, yeah, but, not Juve fans. But you know, yeah. But in each game, it's like it almost. It's so hard to like analyze those games because it's kind of like, okay, you know, if I want to pull away from this and look at it, it's like okay. It seemed fortunate that Neymar didn't play in the second leg, right against right. PSG. And then, you know, the UVA game, you have the 
bizarre penalty mm-hmm. um, at the end. And then the Bayern Munich game, you have the Sven Ulrich, like, just uber brain fart. Yep. <laughs> where he just, the ball rolls through him. And then against Liverpool, you have um, the Salah injury. And then let's not even talk about uh, what happened with Jacarius. And then you also have Gareth Bell scoring on a bicycle kick. So it's like you take all that stuff together and it just, it, it does make you think, even though you can kind of like, be like there's a lot of randomness in soccer that Real Madrid just have all of these good players so they find a way and make one fewer mistakes and then two enough of the kind of um you know decisive moments that matter but to yeah. get back to the uh, the question if you want um about Zidane I think what I just said kind of talks a bit shines light on how difficult it actually is to kind of assess him as a manager because I don't know, I think it's much easier to assess someone over a 38 game season because that's a huge sample of games and you play each team twice. Yeah. Right. And the champions League, so much random crap can happen and it's so few games um, that the like <laughs> champions league success doesn't really match up. I mean, I, he did, they did, they did win, um, Liga, uh, what in his his first full season, right? Um, mm. But so it's those two things like don't the lack of La Liga success on the whole compared to like the just consistent dominance of Europe makes it a really kind of tricky um, sort of analytical process. But I think you know judging managers via analytics is difficult. Um, because, you know, is a team outperforming their numbers because the manager is doing something right or are they outperforming their numbers because they're just getting lucky um, or are they outperforming their numbers because they have, you know, someone like Messi who scores at a way higher rate than expected goals would expect him to. Um, but, you know, there's this, there's the economists did this study where they looked at um, FIFA ratings which I know sounds silly, but it's kind of the best sort of... Like the video game? Like, yes. They okay. looked at the ratings of players, which the it's kind of... For what, say what you will about FIFA, they have this huge scouting network of people that helps them at least figure out the general ratings of the players. Mm. So I think the player ratings in FIFA obviously are not precise, but also they're probably the most precise, like, general assessment of talent of players that we that we have like as a public so basically the economists looked at that the, the sort of to judge the underlying talent of a team and then looked at whether the ma- the managers coaching those teams whether their teams kind of outperformed what you would expect from their talent or whether they underperformed it and based on that Zidane's uh, Madrid teams are like a little bit below average. Um, so that would suggest that potentially they've, they've underperformed under him, but at the same time, you can't really say that because they've <laughs> won uh, the champions league three times in a row. Well, that's, that's a de- whole debate on its own. I think like um, I, there are a lot of people who will say, and we saw it a lot with the transfer window. Cause a lot of people were upset that Real just so Mar- Marcos Llorente. Cause a lot of people felt he was 
he provided a lot that Casemiro can't. He's more press resistant, um, and he's young. He's he was a fan favorite because he was from the youth ranks, and mm-hmm. um, and then there was the, the there was a, a whole different camp that said Zidane is the a, a top five a top player of all time, which to me like whatever like that stuff like if if we were basing it on that then Michael Jordan would be the greatest owner Maradona would be a great coach like I don't I don't necessarily put <laughs> stock in that stuff. But mm-hmm. um, then there was the other argument that said he won three Champions League titles in a row, so he knows what he's talking about. And I get that, but I think there is a counter to that, and that is that there are two, there is a way to look at football that doesn't necessarily just look at results. Because like you mentioned earlier, results are are so variable and volatile and so dependent on luck and some these things out of your control. Like if you mentioned if you re- replayed that uh, a, a game three times, um you know the outcome could be would be different like it let's it's kind of like um so so i guess what i'm trying to say that to me the better assessment is not just results it's the process that we see on the pitch absolutely because so all of a sudden if Madrid don't get that penalty against Juve and then it goes the other way an extra time then all of a sudden we don't give Zidane the benefit of the doubt that he's won three Champions League titles you know like that's the margin of error so I've always been fascinated by just analyzing tactics on the pitch and some people would think it's like kind of just over over analysis and you just have to look at the trophies and I understand their point of view because that's just how a fan feels Um, and I feel that way sometimes but I you know there are there's just so much nuance to it that I just think you have to almost detach yourself from the idea that Zidane won three Champions League titles. Therefore, he is infallible and he, he can't make mistakes and his player selection is going to be on point all the time, you know? Yeah, well, and it's also, I think it's fair to say, right, that he sort of took over this pretty incredible crop of talent, right, as they were all, you know, I think Ronaldo was... Uh, a little bit older, but basically everyone else was like right in the primes of their careers. Um, yeah. And sort of managing that team through knockout games is way different than what he's trying to do now. Right. Where it's essentially like completely rebuild the team and figure out how to get this team performing at an optimal level with um, presumably all of these new players. Right. Um, it's not like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't think it was Zidane isn't, did he have any real like obvious, um, like he picked a guy that he wanted the team to sign and they signed him and he was an immediate success. Um, It doesn't seem like that. Right. So this is just a completely different um, sort of beast for him too. And I think, you know, you can also say like, was Real Madrid kind of, capitulation of the Champions League this year, like, conceivably it could have happened if Zidane was the manager too. You know what I mean? There's no way to quite know that. Sure. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, he's, he comes out of this still, I think, like a genius because he he left, team fell apart, he comes back as a savior. And I mean, then I mean, there was no pressure on him at the end of this season. There's going to be a lot of pressure on him to get it right next season because there's really no excuse at this point. But be interesting to see this one. I don't. I don't know what this means, but maybe you do. Christopher McCormick says, "Let Ryan talk about jumpers." Do you know what this is about? <laughs> At first, I thought he was like wanted me to talk about like mid-range jump shots and how they're bad <laughs> in basketball, but I think it's actually about uh, 
sweaters. Uh, this is sort of the British oh, okay. uh, version of sweaters, which, you know, in my newsletter, I just basically make fun of Pep Guardiola's uh, really kind of pathetic, shaggy looking um, hoodie cardigan that he wore all season. Okay. Um, I mean, that's, you know, I don't have like a soliloquy to offer uh, about <laughs> sweaters, but, you know, I just make a lot of jokes about uh, the knitwear that various managers are reading. So uh, okay. I'm sure that's a huge sell for all of your <laughs> listeners. So go subscribe to the newsletter. All right. Follow <laughs> Ryan O'Hanlon on Twitter to for all the latest on managerial jumper um, news. Brennan Powers says, I hope Madrid stay as far away from Pogba as possible. He's not worth his price tag. He's an overrated diva who can't put in a run of games for more than 10 games and brings drama to himself when he gets bored. He's more worried about his Instagram and hairstyle than the team. I don't doubt his quality, but I do doubt his consistency, which is something Madrid need more than anything right now, especially if they want $150 million for him. I think Zidane is the only person at the club who actually wants him. Just my thoughts. If they buy him, I hope he proves me wrong, but we are long removed from Juve Pogba, who had older players keeping him focused. Um, when he's the star, it seems he always just needs to do something to pull attention to himself when it's focused elsewhere. What are your thoughts? <laughs> By the way, you don't have to f- worry about offending anyone, so feel free to just say whatever you want to say. Okay. Uh, well, I don't. I don't want to offend anyone, um, just in general. But I don't. You know, I. I don't agree with all of the kind of uh, sort of armchair psychoanalysis and reading into his Instagram. <laughs> um, I think to me, it's more uh, the Manchester United stretch of his career feels like the outlier um, <laughs> to me. Uh, he was awesome at Juventus. He uh, won a World Cup with France when I think he was, <laughs> you know, the star of the team. And I don't think anyone looked at him and was like, Pogba's not focused at the World Cup or he's like wants this to be about all about him. If anything, I think at the World Cup, he played a much more reserved role um, than, you, than you would see him play at Manchester United. So I think, you know, it's a, uh, let's just be real here. The Manchester United are a horribly run team <laughs> um, with really no sense of direction or plan. Um, and I honestly think if Pogba leaves, uh, it's going to be one of those situations where all of the fans that want him to leave are going to not realize how important he was to the team until, um, until he actually leaves because he does so much for them. And I think, you know, I think he gets criticized for not being consistent enough because of the, the type of player he is. He's, he's not, you know, he's not Modric or Cruz or Xavi where he's kind of always getting on the ball and setting the pace of the game. You know, he is more of a guy that is going to do three things per game that are amazing and completely can break a defense down. Um, but And he consistently does a handful of those things every game. So I think it's, it's kind of a different level of consistency and it's about kind of more understanding what Pogba actually is than kind of sort of wanting him to be this other sort of metronomic, traditional, stereotypical midfielder. I do think that uh, one thing he hasn't really shown at United that he did show at Juve is he had a much, seemed to have a much bigger capacity for doing a bunch of defensive um, work at Juventus. And maybe, again, that could be due to 
sort of the culture at Juventus and what is expected of players there. Right. Um, but he just hasn't had that defensive output. And I think, he, again, correct me if I'm wrong about my assessment of Madrid, I think Madrid probably needs a midfielder that can kind of provide a little bit more of that bite and sort of resistance in midfield while also um, doing some creative stuff, which Pogba seemed like that was him, like a guy who could literally do anything when he went to United. But he hasn't quite shown that. It's more of the the offensive game, um, and you get a sort of outsized number of goals and assists from a position where you typically don't get um, that production from with like just enough defensive performance for him to play in the midfield, but for him to not, you know, I don't think you plug Pogba into Madrid's midfield and suddenly um, it's like a better defensive midfield all of a sudden. No, um, and this is a team that really relies on how good its transition defense defense is so much of the time because they you know a lot of the time the team is just treading water trying to defend and it's that's why to me also Varane and Ramos are so good because they're constantly just put to the sword over and over again they have to come up with you know these incredible tackles in transition or just to get the team out of a, a tough spot and but I think your point about Pogba and his kind of his attacking ability for midfield is is interesting in a team like Real Madrid specifically because this is a team that really couldn't score goals and even create much, to be honest. You know, like we often say like they just needed a finisher to create all the chances, but the truth is they actually weren't creating that many chances this year. And and having goals from midfield with would have been more routine when Modric and Kroos were playing at a very high level, but they weren't this year. So like to have that ability to have just an extra dimension of attack from a deeper position would be nice to have. But like, so what do you, in terms of, I'm just kind of curious, Ryan, like what do you think a midfield would look like with Pogba in the, in the, in the picture? Um, like, just, do you think like that Modric, Modric would take a back seat in this case? Do you think you could, ex- uh, a potential midfield of Kroos, Modric and Pogba could even, could survive defensively? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I have a hard time seeing that um, that work unless it's kind of in a game where you guys are just uh, like edging up to like seventy percent of possession, where you don't even really have to defend that much. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think again, this goes back to a couple years ago. I would have said Pogba could can do that if you want him to, but I think. I think ideally, to me, he strikes me as, you know, the, you know, thinking about kind of a balance of midfield. If you're playing three midfielders, you kind of want the holding kind of destroyer type player. Then you want um, kind of the incisive passer, right, who can move the ball up the field, you know, slow things down or kind of flip the switch into transition. And then the third guy, this is kind of a traditional way of looking at it. The third guy is kind of the box-to-box guy who's going to make late runs into the box and sort of unsettle the defense that way. So I think, you know, I I think I could see a Pogba plus, again, if I'm treading into, I know that you guys have a sort of complicated relationship with Casemiro. Um, Yeah. You know, Pogba, Casemiro, and then either Cruz or Modric. Um, that sounds like more of a 
um, you know, feasible balance to me. Um, question from Frederick Rantakiro. He says, it seems like a great advantage when the best teams in the world are facing each other, but how important would you say it is to have a ball-playing goalkeeper specifically? Do you think it would have been worth to pay double the amount of money for Allison instead of Courtois? And which two goalkeepers would you like to see in the squad next season? Thanks. Obviously, like, I guess the question is, like, the last part of the question is, if you're Real Madrid, who would you like to see in the squad next season? Um, but the importance of a ball-playing goalkeeper is interesting. Um, and kind of like the question of, is it worth it to, to splash a little bit more on a player like Allison um, over someone like Courtois? Yeah, I, I'll address this in two ways. First, in the concept of Allison and Courtois, I think uh, Allison's value to Liverpool is mainly that he is an incredible shot stopper. Yeah. Um, that's that's the most important thing. Um, you know, if you can, there's a bunch of kind of different uh, systems that can figure out. You know, you can simulate the shot average shots that a keeper faces and figure figure out the how much above average. Um, and Allison was number one in the Premier League for that. He saved like almost a third of a goal per game, which over the course of the season is a lot. Um, and by that same metric, Courtois was um, like bang on average, if not slightly below average. So I guess first is I would say I'm not a huge fan of Courtois in general as a keeper. And I think Allison just as a straight shot stopper is way better than Courtois. So just removing the feet from that equation, I would say that. And then I think it's an interesting question. Um, I think it's valuable, but I think it's only a marginal value. I think shot stopping is so much more important um, than being able to play the ball with your feet. Um, so I think it's, I think when you're addressing a keeper, you kind of first want to look at the style your defense plays and how a keeper can perform under that, whether he has to come off his line for long balls, whether he's going to be facing a lot of shots with, um, you know, not a lot of bodies in front of him, or if he's going to be, you know, facing a lot of shots, but, you know, ones from sort of predictable locations. I think that's the most important thing. And then I think, I almost feel like, uh, Foot skills are a bonus. I think that's about right. I think the moment you start that like the I guess a lot of this is uh there's a lot of nuance to it and like you have to like look at so many different angles. If the the question is like let's say I think this question becomes more interesting if the question is let's say um I don't know, Ter Stegen versus All Black. Cause like the 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 gap in goalkeeping quality between Allison and Courtois is more clear to me, but in terms of shot stopping, I would say like Oblak is a complete alien, but Ter Stegen is better with the ball at his feet, and so like they are more on the same level. Like in that situation, maybe the question becomes more a little bit more interesting. Yeah, so we can kind of do like a little exercise with this. So the the sort of stats that I'm talking about have Oblak as it's kind of incredible what the numbers he saved 0.65 goal extra goals per game compared to the extra keeper, which is almost a goal per, you know, not almost a goal per game, but it's over half. Yeah. That's Um, crazy. 
and Ter Stegen was sixth in La Liga at 0.17. So basically what you have to is, is Ter Stegen's footwork worth for, you know, almost half a goal per game? And it's definitely not, right? It could add a couple goals per season because of the extra possession I think you get from it. But that kind of gap, I don't think you can make up in being able to keep possession with your keeper. Maybe you can, but to me it seems like, you know, it feels like the benefit you get from having a keeper with good feet is like, you know, maybe it adds three or four extra goals to you to your total the whole season. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, Oblak is such an alien that you would still, um, still want him. That is an absurd stat. I didn't know about that until you mentioned it. And like, sometimes we talk about Oblak versus Terstek and, and to me, like I, I never like, if you want to take one or the other, it's fine to me because they're so good. And I don't think there's one clear cut answer, but that stat you just gave out to me might give me a clear cut answer now. Cause that is a wild number. Yeah, I mean, I, I would. It's again, you have to. It's tougher to translate these things across leagues, but I think I would say that, uh, you know, I love Allison as a Liverpool fan, and just as I actually love watching him play, but which I don't, you know, is a kind of a strange thing to say about keepers. But I think Oblak is like significantly the best keeper in the world currently. Mm. Um. One more question I think we'll take and then we'll wrap it up. And this one is Barca related. And um, it kind of goes back to when I told you I, I, you know, I defend Barca a little bit. Ilian Zacco says, just throwing it out there, Keon, you seem to be convinced that Barcelona were good and constant in the past two years. But the fact is Barca have been absolute trash <laughs> relatively <laughs> <laughs> to a team winning a league title and been saved countless amount of times by Messi. Don't take my word for it. Look at their stats in the 17-18 season. Real had more expected points, which is a metric that is more accurate than XG because it takes into account more factors like the time of the goal, etc. Last season, while the season ended with 19 points difference. However, expected points had us less than 9 points behind. Now that may not seem seem like... uh, That may not seem little, but I look at it like this. This was the worst um, Real Madrid season at league in a long time. And we are only three matches behind their constant team. Uh, I understand that you're trying to be classy when you speak to Barca fans. However, when you outright praise Barca, it rubs me the wrong way. Um, so, th- yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, we talked about this a little bit. I, I honestly, I don't think it's that se- it's a secret that Barca don't, don't really haven't looked necessarily good. I mean, they. There are definitely stretches in the season you're like, holy shit, these guys are actually really good. Like, and, and when Suarez is clicking and Messi's clicking and um, you know when Arthur starts getting control of the game, I think part of the problem was like, while they had really good performances individually this season from PK, Ter Stegen, Messi, Suarez uh, for stretches of the season. Um, also, like Arthur really wasn't that consistent. I guess Rakitic wasn't. Like you know, like I mean. You you saw it firsthand. You 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 watched a depleted Liverpool. I remember you wrote about it too. Like what what has to go Liverpool's way to win this and come back, and then they did. But what is your take on all this? Like the whole Barca. Like how do you measure this team? Yeah, I think it's. Um, I think they're one of the handful of teams where you lose a little bit in looking at the underlying numbers, just because you know based on expected goals. And if you compare the number of goals someone scores, most players kind of 
you know, regress or end up around what their expected goals say over a long period of time. And Messi is like significantly the best finisher of all time based on expected goals and is always way above. The only thing he's actually like below, um, again, I'm sorry to talk about Barcelona again. Um, I'm just on a quest to make all of your (laughs) listeners hate me. Um, the only thing he's actually like below average on is penalties, which is hilarious. But so they, they have that kind of, and they play through Messi so much that it makes his kind of finishing even more important and has more of an outsized effect on the numbers. Um, so I think you're always, Barca's, if Messi's healthy, they're always going to outperform their expected points or expected goals. But, you know, it's interesting. You look at Barcelona's point totals over the past five seasons, and they haven't really declined that much. You know, it's mostly, it was low 90s for like the past four years, and then they dropped to what, like 87 or 88 this year. So it's not a big drop off, but the underlying numbers did drop off significantly. Um, So like just seeing, even though the kind of top level of points stayed the same, there, there is a drop off, but I think, you know, I, I think it's kind of widely accepted at this point that like Barca is just, they were, they're not the team they were in 2015, right? They're a worse team, but I think, I think you would probably agree that Madrid are also a worse team than they were then. And I would say Atletico are probably even a worse team um, than they were, were then. So it's kind of like maybe Barca is still the best team by the same degree, but everyone is kind of down a peg or two. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it because the the top teams in La Liga in the past two years or so haven't really been up to par. Um, mm. on, I guess on the flip side, which is maybe cool, some people um, might like that there's more parity because the smaller teams seem to have gotten better. And so like no longer, not this season anyway, wasn't like routine for Real Madrid to walk into, I don't know, any X away Spanish ground and it, and they weren't expected to win necessarily because it was like every game was a battle and Barcelona too, but they would, they would, I guess the difference was they got results, but to your point, they also maybe got lucky that Atletico and Real Madrid weren't really at their best either. So at some point, I assume that just kind of normalizes and they get, they both get back to their best. But do you, do you think that Real Madrid's roadmap post Ronaldo is a bit more clear cut and easier than Barcelona's post Messi? Like what do you, what do you think? How, how is, how much easier will the rebound be for one of these teams over the other? I think it's it's much easier for Madrid um, just because, like, you know, r- by the end of his career, Ronaldo wasn't doing all the dribbling that he did when he first came to the team. He basically, you know, he, pl- he was a left winger, I guess, technically, but he was basically a striker and just took a ton of shots, and that's kind of what he did, and he became a pure goal scorer for the most part. Um, while Messi like scores the goals for Barcelona also assists the goals and also drops deep and moves the ball up the field. And they're almost seemingly becoming more and more reliant on him as he gets older. Um, I've made the comparison that like Barcelona saw Argentina Messi and they were like, we actually want that for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and you know, maybe, maybe that had, you know, it's, again, probably randomness that they've just completely capitulated in the Champions League two years in a row, but maybe just being so reliant on one player makes you more um, at risk of 
having something like that happen to you? I don't know. I think it's, it's something worth thinking about. It's probably not the case, but, but so I think for that factor, just messy is so important and such has such an outsized importance that it's a problem for two reasons, because one, how do you replace that guy? Right. And then two, he's so good still that there, and it doesn't seem like he's going to, there's not going to, it doesn't seem likely that there's going to be a sort of Ronaldo to Juventus moment for Messi. Um, so in a way like Barcelona probably should surround Messi with a bunch of guys that are like at their best right now to get the most out of the end of his career, which if you do that, the guys you have around Messi are also going to be declining once kind of Messi is gone. Yeah. So I think cause of, I think the Messi reliance, which they've weirdly grown into, um, makes it tougher for them while Madrid, I think it's, um, they, you know, they've you've already spent a ton of money and most of it is on, um, as they kind of have done historically recently, other than the hazard move, most of it has been on a bunch of young players. So right. they already kind of have, you know, they've already filled a bunch of holes with super talented young guys that if they pan out, they're going to be on the team for the next 10 years. Right. Yeah. They've stockpiled like crazy, like in the youth department, specifically in the attacking midfield position. Like, so, I mean, at some point they're going to have to decide who they're going to keep and who they're not going to keep. Um, and players are they're going to have to deal with like player grumblings and stuff and not lack of playing time. But at the same time, I think, you know, Florentino mentioned it this summer, like in an interview, he said like, this is the, the market, the landscape is completely different when we dominated the market, you know, like a decade ago. So, or even beyond that. Um, so the, the strategy has changed. Like just, I think, I also think they were kind of scarred by missing out on Neymar the first time. Um, mm-hmm. so hence like, you know, they weren't going to miss out on him again. They tried to get Neymar the best they could. And in the end they didn't, and it really came down to some corruption and some shady dealings with Barca, mm-hmm. which I think still is, there's a court case about it, I, I think. But, um, I think they, they kind of just shifted direction because there's, it, they really wanted to plan ahead this time and it makes sense to me. So I, I agree with you. I think Real Madrid are kind of in a better position to cope with that long term. Now, like we are just counting down the days until Messi retires because it feels like it feels like the guy's ageless at this point. Um, I, I, you know, I, I made this argument. While I think it sounds crazy to say, I think that arguably this, even though he's, a, he's much older now, this may have been peak Messi this year. We may have actually experienced peak Messi. I just like it was incredible to me what he was doing on the pitch literally by himself and just the dependence on him as you said was like on another level this year and his numbers actually I went back and looked at his numbers I think this year he like exceeded like almost every metric of his career this year he had his career highs in so many different categories that despite it being older you may have actually we may have actually witnessed peak Messi and he you know and uh, kind of just flew right by us Yeah I think it's um I think it could be true. I mean, it, I'm looking at the numbers now. The 2012 season in La Liga, he had um, 50 goals and 16 assists. <laughs> Which season? That was 2011, 2012. 2011. Yeah. Um, but the, you know that a lot of those came on penalties. He had 10 penalties this year. This year, um, he had 36 goals, 13 assists, only four penalties. So you know, strip out penalties and. It's, they start to start to co- sort of come together, and then you think of 
the percentage of the goals that Messi scored, that Barcelona scored, the numbers that he assisted on, and then all the other stuff, whether it's, you know, moving the ball up the field, dribbling past people, um, being an outlet also for passes up the field. It's, um, to me, it was, uh, the, the raw like goal and assist totals might not match up to that season that I mentioned, but I think you're right. I think it's, well, I guess just in terms of the goal involvement and the chance creation in general. Um, I mean, I, I feel like every month we saw that chart that there would be like a different chart that would come out and be like, hey, these are like the, this is a chart of the best creators in Europe. And it's like one axis is XG, the other one is our XGA, and the other one is, um, I don't know, key passage or something. And he would be like in the top right, like almost out of the chart. And everyone else will just be clustered in the bottom left. <laughs> like we saw that chart like updated every month and it was just the same. So I just like, I mean, we didn't have those charts, I guess, growing up when we were younger, but it just seemed to me like in terms of just creating chances. And I haven't looked at the updated numbers since I checked it a few months ago, but at the time, like he was really just, he was just constantly like, it was just him and it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's, you can make the argument that he's sort of the best goal scorer a sister and sort of dribbler and passer in the world, like all of those four things currently, um, which is kind of a, a crazy thing to say for, for this point in his career. But yeah, I, I think um, it's on like, this is the most um, kind of the most impressive season that he's had. Yeah. Which is crazy. Um, Ryan, before we let you go, can you please tell everyone where they can find your work? Uh, yeah, I, as you mentioned earlier, I have a newsletter, um, analytics adjacent newsletter that also talks about, uh, jumpers as one of your readers called it. (laughs) Um, it's called no grass in the clouds. Um, the URL is no grass in the clouds.substack.com. Um, comes out twice a week, uh, one free newsletter on Tuesdays and then one, uh, premium one on Fridays with some other chats and other extra sort of bonus stuff here and there. Um, and then I, you know, could find my writing on ESPN and a couple other places. Uh, so yeah, I I think that that covers it. So we'll link the, um, we'll link the, the Substack uh, URL in the show notes. People can click on it directly and at, at R W O H A N, uh, on Twitter. And we'll also yep. link that so you can cut and follow Ryan on Twitter. Ryan, thank you so much for your time, buddy. This was a lot of fun, um, and uh, I hope I hope we do it again sometime. Maybe like we'll we'll aim for an annual thing with this. Um, but it was a ton of fun, and I appreciate your time. Thank you, buddy. That sounds awesome. We'd love to come back. All right, everybody. Hello and welcome back. This is uh, part two of your Managing Madrid podcast for this week. Um, so this is your. Um, Gabe Lezer, I'm joined um, by Keon and Matt to talk, uh, to answer some questions, a little mailbag here, um, have time to chat about a lot of different issues, um, <laughs> a lot of, lot of different issues. Uh, so, hey guys, how's it going? Great. How are you doing? Doing well, man. Doing well. Uh, Matt, what's going sure. on, buddy? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing well as, as well. So, all good, all good. Uh, it's, yeah, it's a little muggy in DC right now, but I... Uh, I'm excited because Real Madrid is playing Juve in this city in about um, a month. So that's pretty dope. Pretty dope. And I'm also really enjoying the Women's World Cup 
Uh, I know I promised to drop that podcast last week, but I think it's going to happen this weekend instead. Nice. So just FYI, I had imagined that I would get my computer back, and then it turned out that, uh, yeah, the thing's totally busted, and I need a new one, which sucks. <laughs> um, I, um, that reminds me, because you mentioned the game in Jersey. Um, Matt actually brought this up with me, and I completely forgot to bring it up. Matt, do you want to explain to one of our patrons, Leon Stavronakis, <clears throat> was inquiring about who's going to the game. Was it the, the Derby, the one against Atletico? Atleti, yeah. That's the one in Jersey. Matt, do you want to elaborate? Yeah, so uh, Leon messaged me and uh, mentioned that he would have an opportunity um, for some of the MM crew potentially to attend that game uh, together in a box suite, which would be incredible. Um, so if you guys are interested, just let me know after the show and we can try and coordinate that and work it. Well, when we awesome. I put out the... I just put out a kind of like the survey to our patrons to see who was in New York. And there was a lot of people like a good, at least 20 of our patrons were, were in New York or that area. So there uh, might be NYC. a possible thing. It might be a thing that, you know, we could organize. Shout out. Uh, that sounds great. I mean, if, if that's true, I would, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in coming up also. So that would kick ass. Um, all right. So with that, we are uh, here to just answer some of your questions. I'm going to pull up the, uh, the document now. But, um, yeah, so like I said, a lot of different things. And I think the, the, the most interesting one, a little bit out of left field, but I guess, Ken, you explain to me why. Um, mm. This one's about baseball. <laughs> I don't really know. I'm going to just jump in with it, though. Uh, Brendan Powers asks us, um, I'm a huge baseball fan which is, it is way ahead of the game in analytics and is doing a great job every single day. The uh, MLB has done a great job to get behind this movement and push the science behind it. Is FIFA slash UEFA involved in this at all? Uh, I know Driveline for Baseball kind of started it all. They convinced a lot of baseball players to try the, their methods, and it worked. Um, Trevor Bauer of the Cleveland Indians is a great example. And now the second question, is your organization kind of like Driveline? So, Keon, um, this question was meant not for i'm mean, uh exactly so he's not obviously he's not talking about us um do you want to like quickly remind everyone um what exactly he's asking about uh basically like you know because this question came in after we finished recording with ryan we brought it forward here and i and i threw it at you because you've talked about baseball analytics before and then, i have and then so i i had the utmost confidence in you to to answer this question well i can answer this i mean I'll, all right um i can't answer what ryan o'hanlon's organization does i don't i don't know but how long do you think it will be until we see analytics actually being discussed during the games and by players looking to improve their game are there any leagues willing to embrace that i believe that would be the best way to get analytics going like i said the mlb is way ahead of everybody because they embrace the change i would also i just want to quickly also say that MLB is ahead of everyone because baseball is an extremely analytics-friendly game. So it's easier. I don't mean to disparage or, like, talk down to anyone, like, doing baseball analytics. But it just is a much easier game to design predictive and, uh, uh, you know, many different types of analytics for. So in, in, in football, it's just simply not the case. Like, it's very hard to get um, – you know, to, to, to get to the place where you're man, like targeting and talking about every different aspect of the game. So, for example, in baseball, um, you have these discrete events that happen. You have very discrete data points and all these different things. Whereas in, in football, there's at once too much data and too little data. 
And so you're in this kind of what you really want is this middle ground, which is almost exactly where baseball is. But with soccer, it's like every one of the players moving around at every single moment is a data point. So is the position of the ball. So is the, uh, you know, so is the direction of the play. It's all the every single one of these things is, is a data point. So you have to model it basically like um, and when I talk to you know, some of my friends who have been in who've been doing soccer analytics and I wouldn't even say that and soccer analytics don't exist like they really do. But it's just that they're very complex and harder to ex- explain because you're modeling. Basically, it, you have to you take a system approach to modeling it basically like as if you were trying to model airflow or gas because every different particle uh, you have to think about it as every person on the pitch interacting with each other and influencing the where other places are going to be. And the ball is just one element of a much larger picture. So it's very hard to do. That's one of the reasons why. But uh, so the question of whether UEFA and FIFA are involved, no. And if they were, it'd be worse. I, I just I think <laughs> any time where you have the question of whether these organizations are involved, the answer should always be we don't want them involved, like as little as possible. So like it's it's really down to what needs to be happen is to have a baseball or a soccer team basically adapt it like the you know the A's did um, and actually like lean into it and then get results. So you can have a team that really leans into analytics, but if they suck and they lose, no one else is going to do it. it. If you have a team that leans into the analytics and then also kind of makes waves and makes upsets and and all that. Um, like what the the A's did with baseball, where they had a very short, slow you know budget, but they leaned into the analytics and found value in the market that other people didn't see, and then became like a playoff team and all that. That's what you need in soccer, and only you only need a couple examples of to 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 get other teams interested. And I think that's really what we're waiting for. Um, and we're waiting partially because, like I said, it's a hard environment. It's like it's literally a hard environment to model. Um, that being said, I do think right now that there are plenty of like all of the top teams have an analytics department and that analytics department is specifically calibrated um, and, and tied into their team. So my understanding is that all these top teams have these departments that they use uh, and they use them for improving the players on the pitch. Like they'll look at them and show them all the different types of shots they're taking, their decision-making, all that stuff. So I, I would say that analytics is incorporated into the, the the game pretty well. I think the question is more one of, will there be a particularly new or strong predictive analytic that, you know, predictive measure that we can, that we'll see adopted more, like expected goals or whatever. And that's a more open question. I'm not sure that we'll ever get to a baseball level of predictive analytics in soccer. Um, and, you know, we do see people talk about expected goals um, in broadcast now. So, if that's the measure of whether the analytics movement has succeeded, then it, it has. I think it's there, but otherwise. Well, as much as, uh, as expected goals has been helpful, I think it's also really, if you think about it, the bare bones of right. what we're, I think the ultimate goal would be. And I would say, I mean, I, to be clear, when, when Brendan asks, is your organization kind of like driveline directed towards Ryan? I don't know what Ryan's organization is. I, I, I don't even know. I, I, I wasn't even aware of that he has an organization. I think he just, you know, he works for people and uh, and throughout the years he's established connections and he looks up stats, you know, the way we do. But I think, like, one of the cool things this year, like, we've had three kind of analytics guys on the podcast, Ryan, Mike Goodman, Mike Cayley, and they all just kind of, they were all excited about the direction of football analytics and where it's going. And, um, you know, everything from 
XG really, really, really is just the basic stuff now. Like it kind of blew our mind at first, like the algorithm they used to do it and how like now, like this season, you look at understat immediately after a game and you have your XG numbers, you have where everyone, where those XG shots came from on the pitch, the, um, the likelihood of the shots going in. So it's been really helpful and you can just kind of just hover over it. But now like you have everything from PPDA to like, which is like opponents passes per defensive action and all these little like wrinkles in soccer analytics that have become useful. I think it, like you said, we are a long way of like in terms of catching up to baseball with it or even the NBA. And um, part of the reason is because there's so much variance in soccer and it's hard to know what the correlations actually, the meaningful correlations are. Right. There's substitutions. There's like, you know, it's not like... What we have right now is a lot of descriptive analytics, right? Like PVPA is a descriptive analytic. It's telling you what happened on the pitch in the game. And what you're looking for, the idea, what the kind of holy grail of analytics is, is to have a predictive analytic, right? One that says, if you put this person onto your team in this position, you have a X percent chance better of winning the game. Or this player is worth you know, X number of points per season, which would be basically a baseball, uh, a soccer war, wins above replacement. And that yep. is brutally hard to do in this sport. Yeah, it is. It's really hard to do. Um, having said that, I think it's I think it's heading into the right direction. Like as, as difficult it is to come up with soccer analytics. And also, um, the, you know, the cool thing with like, uh, you know much more about baseball than I do, Gabe, and I don't know where Matt's uh, baseball fandom lies. But with the NBA, M- <laughs> M- what is it existent? I said or nowhere. I don't know. Yeah, no, it doesn't exist. Yeah, I figured. But so basically, <laughs> I like the thing with NBA stuff is like it's very, um, it's widely available to the public. It's democratized. You know, with soccer, a lot of the deep, like interesting statistics that we can get a hold of, it's like. You're just lucky enough to either work for a company that can get that for you for a specific article, um, or you just like you get you come across it on Twitter for a company that you know just put out a random stat. Um, you know, like we can't really widely, we don't really have wide access to looking up just like goalkeeper analytics um, that easily. Um, I know, like the the few articles that I've written for Statsbomb since I've started. I can basically ask them like, "Hey, what's this crazy stat? Find it for me, and they'll make like a big chart for me." And uh, <laughs> cool, but it but it's not widely available to the public. And I think the cool thing about the NBA is like you can look up look up anything you want, really. Yeah, and there's like really cool things you can find. Yeah, and also NBA itself is like invested in it in the sense that they they're very big on analytics, and um, which I don't think soccer has gotten to yet on a on a maybe on a team level it has, but not on a on a fan level. Yeah, on a yeah. fan level. Or like, you know, UEFA being like, hey, we'd love to to put analytics free for the public. I just don't think they can. Yeah, you're right. Part of the problem here is that teams view the data that they collect on their players and the data that they collect on other teams' players as privileged information that right. they use themselves. So one of the things that really helped baseball explode was that the baseball is all about data and it's very easy to collect data in baseball. And... It was all public. So at the very beginnings of this analytics movement in baseball were it was not the person who was doing it. Bill James was not affiliated with any team. And so as such, his his findings were all about simply like public knowledge and bettering under better understanding of the game and all that stuff. And it was just, he was just doing it because he liked it. It was a hobby. Right. And this that allowed other people to come in and help with it and like start 
you know, the, the public nature of the data was so important to that um, because it allowed a lot of different people who maybe didn't have didn't have specialty in soccer specifically play with the data and, 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 and create new things with it. And it's just not the way it is now. Everyone, every piece of this, like this data exists, but it's under lock and key at either the clubs or at like Opta, which charges for their data. Yeah. Yeah. The, the only thing I would add is just to supplement what you just said, because you guys basically covered everything right there. But um, Gabe, just to supplement what you just said, most of these, all of these teams have been using this data for, for years now. Um, yeah. And like you said, they've had it under lock and key. We saw recently um, something came out that Betis used um, analytics to find, uh, to purchase Giovanni Lo Celso because he kind of, his player type and his statistics matched up more closely to Fabian than anyone else. Hmm. And so that's what they used to replace him. And so teams have been using this for years. I actually, and maybe I can uh, get a hold of this individual and try to get him on the podcast. Um, someone I used to work with now um, has started his own analytics company and has worked with Inter Milan. I know for a fact he's worked with Inter Milan. Um, I, he may have worked a bit with Real Madrid, so um, definitely would love to get him on here and yeah, be able to be share, some of, share some of his wisdom. That'd be great. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's much more to add. Um, so we're going to go ahead and jump forward, get back to talking about Real Madrid <laughs> with a very on-brand Real Madrid question also. Um, Varun asks us, um, did Real Madrid miss anything more by not signing a proper competition slash backup for our only number nine of the past decade, Kareem Benzema? <laughs> I know Benzema was a vital cog in our recent UCL dominance, but with a proper competition for him with players like Jovic, I think we would have won 2014, 15, 17, 18 La Liga also, and we would have made our recent past even more special. He said, disclaimer, basically he likes Benzema a lot. So it's not intended as a particularly a criticism. I don't know, Kian, what do you think? I mean, there's a case. I mean, the idea that we would win, we would have won four straight La Liga titles is hard for me to buy into all the way because there were more problems than one in those campaigns. I think it does address a single issue, and that is a reliable second goal scorer because in all those years it was Ronaldo and last season I mean we we watched Benzema miss a ton ton of great chances and so that didn't help the year before we had Morata off the bench who scored key goals and this season we only had really Benzema who was scoring so the idea of having a second scorer that's reliable certainly like there's a case that obviously your team is just better there's no question I always knew that it was going to be tricky to do that um the 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 tough balance is always um can you sign a striker and you know whether it be right or wrong but this is the way Zidane viewed it can you sign a striker that's good enough to come off the bench and score goals but also not to good to the point where he's going to be able to start complaining and demand minutes from Benzema Morata was uh, kind of that nice in between but eventually he wanted more playing times so it's kind of hard to fill that role to be honest. Um, if you look at Barca, Barca's really had trouble finding that player behind Suarez over the years. Yeah. Um, they've tried with Alcácer. Yeah. Um, they've, you know, the Kevin Prince Bontag <laughs> signing this year was actually ridiculous <laughs> and obviously completely redundant when you look at the grand scheme of things. But 
it's not an easy role to fill. I think that goes holds true like for all the clubs. You look at Harry Kane, it's been Fernando Llorente for a long time. Um, so like, you know, it I I agree if you had that second goal score though, your job becomes much easier if you can find that player. I mean, we're spoiled this year, Matt, right? Cuz we have Raul de Tomas, we have Mariano who could play that role. We have Benzema, we have Jovic. Um and ultimately even even like Raul de Tomas is probably too good for that role from what we're seeing, but I don't know. Yeah, and I I mean, if you look back on our last our last two La Liga winning campaigns, we had Morata playing that role. And then the year 2012, we had Higuain and Benzema in, um, in swapping back and forth, fighting for that starting 11 position. And ultimately, like you said, Kian, it's just it's so difficult to try and get someone to play that role because Higuain, I mean, he was a big time striker. He wants to be the starting number nine outright like he was for Real Madrid for so many years. And Benzema wants that too. And then when you have a coach like Zidane who just, has the utmost faith in Benzema and uh, and rightly, rightly for the most part, and um, wants to play him game in and game out. Feels he's vital to the team. It's hard to, unless you're going to play a two striker system, it's hard to really incorporate another striker. And that's when obviously Morata left, and you're left scrambling trying to fill the, that role the right way. Uh, I don't have anything else to add personally. I um, I feel like we've addressed some of the topics before um and i want to get on to a kind of sadder note um Kian, i'm sorry to say we've got two questions about about your boy um llorente so let's just go through these quickly um rafael Sevilla asks um i'm pissed we sold llorente to atleti what the fuck also i hope we get first option buyback clause i hope llorente does really well and makes flow feel fucking stupid in the next two years uh and knell <laughs> tilakar as this my heart is breaking for Llorente, and I have a feeling that eventually a similar thing could happen to Hakimi and Oreglion, uh, Reguilon, um, who both deserve their chance at Madrid. Anyways, who do you think um, our future business will be? Basically, who goes sold, who comes in, who goes out, etc. Um, so I just want to give you a moment to mourn, Kian. <laughs> well, we spent all day yesterday doing that, so I think I've done enough as much mourning as I possibly can, and I'm ready to move on. Um, hmm. But it's good to know that everyone's still feeling feeling bad um, because this is a trash piece of business. It was bad. It bad. was bad. I, I will it. say I've never I w- I've seen people over the years when their favorite player gets sold, they either jump ship or they'll make comments like, "I hope this player knocks us out," it, like just prove prove the management wrong. I that's that's silly. I hope that never happens. If yeah, that's dumb. <laughs> I really like. I would love for Yanti to succeed. I'm sure he will. I think it's a good situation for him at, for him at Atleti. Uh, dear God, no! I hope it, that he does not yeah, have God, a no, masterclass yeah. against us and knocks <laughs> us out of anything. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of the business question, do you do you guys have anything to add? I mean, who goes out and comes in? I feel like we've um, addressed this a little bit, but with kind of new data. You guys well, have any thoughts on that? <laughs> I, I'll just say one thing. I think, and Kian, you wrote about it in your article as well. I think. It's almost the thing we forget about. It's not the business side. It's the human side of this. And sometimes, like, we didn't want... Obviously, nobody wanted Marco Charente to go to Atletico, but Marco Charente wanted to stay in Madrid. His family's there. His girlfriend's happy there. His life is there. He's got the opportunity to stay in Spain for a top team. Like, that's why he's going to Atletico Madrid more than anything. So there's a human side of it. Like, he wanted to go there, so Madrid weren't going to deny him of that. It's, it's his life. 
And so I think we may see that with, like, obviously we have a surplus of fullbacks with Regulon, Hakimi, all these guys we've got to figure out what we're going to do with. And maybe maybe they don't want to be with Real Madrid when the time comes. If they just feel like they're not going to play, then we, we have to – sometimes as fans, I think we forget that human side of it. Yeah. And the human side informs the business side because – you know, if the team gets a reputation for treating people like shit, then people aren't going to want to come play for us. Like, yeah. And and the good news I think is that Madrid actually doesn't have a reputation for treating people like shit. Like they actually have a have a pretty good reputation and, and historically actually have treated people pretty well. Now, you know, with notable exceptions, um, especially in the Mourinho era. But yeah. Well, you kind of see a version of what's happening here at Manchester City with what happened with Brahim because after Brahim left, Guardiola, well, first of all, I mentioned like we don't, we're not going to keep players who don't want to be here, but he also said he's worried that this will happen more in, this, in the future for Manchester City because at some point you have so much talent, then what is exactly the point of players being in the squad at all? Like from their perspective, they just want to play. And like like Matt said, the human side, you know, it's it's easy for fans to be like, how could you go play with your rivals? It's a lot different when you're a player and this is your career. This is literally, you wake up every day, this is your job. Like, And you can't, and if you're not playing, if Llorente stays, end up staying and he just doesn't play again, that really, heading, he's 24 now, he's supposed to be at heading into his prime soon. You can't mess with that. Like, you have to go play. And Atletico was the biggest club that would have given him playing time and, you know, close to home or whatever. But, I do, you know, like if we if we're to assume, like some part of the surprise was how could he do this? He's a Castilla player. He has a bloodline of Real Madrid. It's also, you know, what's stopping two years from now if we think Hakimi is a Castilla player? Hakimi is going to come in. Okay, Mendy's here, Regulon's here, uh, Carvajal, Rizzo on the other side. All right, uh, I'd like to go to Dortmund, please, or just go back to Dortmund. And you can't get mad at him for that. And like so. Sometimes we, we talk about this stuff as a good problem to have, but there's also, it's a problem for a reason because uh, you just, players are not going to want to stay. It's a good, it's a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. Essentially. And I think it, it is a good problem in the sense that you end up with someone out of all this, but the problem comes in, I guess, if you end up with the wrong talent out of all your, the ones you stockpiled. That's right. So just another, uh, you just have to, you know, another time when you have to bank on Madrid scouting being good. And I, I think they've proven that they are and talent evaluation. So we'll, I mean, we'll, ca- we'll cross some of these bridges when it comes to it, frankly. But it is, yeah, it's, it's a good problem to have. But it's still a problem. So, um, all right, Keon, back to you. Uh, Brandon Stevens says, uh, Keon, congratulations on the Raptors' first title. Thank you. Um, you you must be over the moon excited. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're paid by flow and Real Madrid is your first love, but would you have traded the Raptors' first title for Madrid's fourth straight Champions League? And I'd like to answer both in a vacuum and with context. Personally, I hope the answer is no, because as much as I love Madrid, we're spoiled, and you Raptors fans have, th- have suffered a lot leading up to this breakthrough. Um, all right, so in a vacuum, which one of these two outcomes would you have wanted? Because in a vacuum, I think it might be a tougher one, but I'd imagine, Keon, that with context, you'd, you're actually fine with the way it shook out. <laughs> Oof. Um, no, it's I would choose the Champions League for Real Madrid every time. 
in yeah, a vacuum. In a vacuum. Even with the context of the four straight years, I still would have chosen to win a fourth straight year. Um, the reality is like, but that, having said that, the feeling of the Raptors winning the championship was below La Decima for me, obviously, but about maybe second place or so. Uh, yeah. But but I don't know if it was. I I can't I can't confirm that for sure. I, you know, I just it was an amazing feeling, mostly because of the suffering. But at the same time, the context is this: Raptors aren't expected to do much, whereas Real Madrid are. So like, the Raptors can have a successful season by getting to the finals and losing to the Warriors. But Real Madrid, really, that 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 doesn't exist for them. It's like win or lose, really. Um, yeah. And so. Because of the expectations part, we can enjoy a Raptor season pretty thoroughly if they get pretty far. But the Real Madrid, because of like the cash flow, the brand, the size of the club, the expectations, it's a bit different. Um, I would choose the Champions League every time still, even with the context. Because I'm a bigger Real Madrid fan than, I'm a, than I am a Raptors fan. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of... I mean, it should be evident that you are, considering that you've... This is your career, <laughs> right? It's like talking about Real Madrid. So, like kind of like of course of course that's that that makes a ton of sense you know what um, though it's interesting that I, i've talked i've talked to so many journalists who are fans of certain teams but because of their profession of being a journalist their fandom kind of just wanes a little over time yeah when it becomes your job i mean i haven't experienced that yet i'm still flying high on the fandom train but hmm. but i but i but people have experienced that and it's interesting. I mean, I even was talking to Ryan about it, you know, with, yeah. Um, and then also just people who you sit press row with, they're like, yeah, you know, I used to be a huge, this fan. Um, now I just, I don't have time to watch them. And, or, or like I'm a real Madrid fan, but you know, I'm just, I'm sitting here every day. It's my job. I come in the office and yeah, you know, anyways, that has nothing to do with anything, but I, I just think like, I haven't been desensitized to it yet, and that fandom is still like pretty, pretty high. Well, I hope I hope that never happens, frankly. Yeah, I don't think it will, but I hope so um, too. All right, Drowsy Dos Santos asks us um, an interesting question. Uh, no number on Jovic's on Jovic's back in his presentation today. Does that imply that Perez and Zidane are banking on offloading some current attacking squad members? If so, who could this be? Um, East Gold. Lucas Bale, and then what number would you give Jovic? Um, yeah, I mean, neither Jovic nor Azard had numbers. Um, it is certain to me that that's what's happening. So, yeah, I don't know. That sounds about exactly right to me. Going to go, but it's definitely going to be that's what's going to happen. So, yeah, that sounds right. Agreed. Um, what number? I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, it depends, I, I guess, on what Azard wants, right? Like I could see uh, first pick. I could see eighteen now that Urente's left. Yeah, it depends on who leaves, right? Yeah. What was Morata's number? Anyone remember? Twenty-one. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe Isco's number if he leaves. Bale's number if he leaves probably should go to Azard. I would imagine. Uh, Mariano has has a very valuable number. <laughs> oh yeah, good point. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on what happens with him. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's going to be a tough number to pass around, considering who's worn it. But aren't they all? Um, all right, let's do let's do a couple more. Um, 
on uh, on, and this is both about the promotion of um, Raul to uh, Castilla. So, um, Rovi Tagiev asks us, "I know we're all hyped up about the transfers as uh, as we should be, but Raul going appointed to manage Castilla has been almost unnoticed. He is the reason why I fell in love with Real Madrid in '98. I'm even named my son after him. Wow, wow. Zidane is the king." But one day when he leaves, how great could Raul be as the manager of Real Madrid? Um, Sheikh Hatiri also asks us, um, if I missed y'all talking about this, I apologize. The last news among the Azard signing and the transfer season is that His Royal Majesty, Raul, praise be upon him, has been appointed as the new manager for Castilla. I don't have a question. I just thought it was important to point it out. One of the greatest, uh, one out of respect for the greatest Madridista ever, and also because if he succeeds, he will be the first team's coach at some point. This creates a dilemma for me. On the one hand, I want Real Madrid to win, win, and win. On the other hand, if Raúl becomes the manager and fails like Solari did, I could never ring myself to support his sacking. The good news is that Paris doesn't respond to my texts anymore, so I guess my opinion is a moot point, anyways. But if he does succeed, how cool would it be to have Zizou coach for a few more years? And when he's tired, he could go and tan on the beach while Raul is raining. And when he gets exhausted, Zizou comes back and he goes to recharge. It's really the dream scenario. Can't Raul please win the treble? <laughs> um, yeah, Raul to Castilla happened. Um, Kian, I remember we discussed a little bit. Um, and Matt, I, uh, I'm interested in your take on this too. But we discussed previously that there were a lot of interesting young like coaches and, and figures coming up through the Madrid kind of coaching system. But we'd always kind of focused on Xabi Alonso as a future, like, high-end coach. What do you, what do you make of Raul um, coaching? Like, what do you think his style is? Do you think he, he's going to succeed at the next level? Well, it's, uh, we don't really have much sample size of Raul coaching other than he was at Juvenil A, um, uh, or Xabi or Alonso for that matter. But we just assume the best of Xabi Alonso because of his um, brilliant tactical feel for the game. Underrated is that Raul also has that. You know, he's a very intelligent, he was a very intelligent intelligent footballer um, and obviously a very intelligent person. So I I get the concerns that Shea has in some point. And, you know, part of me, I had the same concerns with Zidane. It's like because he has such an amazing reputation as a player. Somehow he's topped his reputation, but... You know, we always had that concern. Is yeah. this going to be good for his reputation? Why doesn't he just stay out of it, just preserve his legacy? Because, like, managing Real Madrid, if we're being really honest, is the worst job in the world. It's it's the worst. Um, it's a tough one. It, you know, it pays well, though. But it's it's a, it's, a, it's a really, really stressful gig. And so, but, but you know, in terms of, like, how kind of coach Raul is, I don't know. This is, I think, the first year we get to kind of see, like, because he gets to coach Cassie. And I made... You know, I made this comment on Twitter. Kind of fun. Next year at Castilla, we may, we may, and it's not for sure. We don't really know exactly where the players are going to end up. They're going to go out on loan. They're going to be in the first team. You could have a scenario where you have Rodrigo and Kubo on the wings in Castilla with Raul coaching, which would be really fun. And uh, the ratings for Castilla would be pretty high in that situation. Isn't it funny, though, that we kind of have the same quote-unquote problem we do with stockpiling players with coaches now? We had yeah. Guti had to leave in order for more coaching coaching time. Shabi uh, Alonso had to leave for more coaching time. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know. The, the problem with always with these things is always like you know you can have a lot of great coaches and, uh, but if you're if you're Zidane is a long term guy, then they're gonna have to go elsewhere. Um, 
you know, this is not yeah, really the, the same parallel. Lucky for us but. that the coaching situation, a lot of times they just get better with time. <laughs> Whereas yeah. like with players, there's a limited total amount of their career. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, with coach, you could have Guti coach for another 45 years. So like, that is a sort of a different thing. Because eventually Zidane will get tired and retire and we'll have to go get someone <laughs> yeah, else. Yeah, totally different. Yeah. And I, I think what's gone on to the radar, which you mentioned, Keon, is that Xabi Alonso has left um, Real Madrid, and now he's back at Real Sociedad. Took um, He's probably going to be taking charge of their B team this yeah. year. And then uh, Guti also left uh, Besitas, so no news of where he'll end up yet, but he, he obviously had the assistant manager role there, and now hopefully getting a first-team job somewhere, so we'll, we'll also keep track of him. But yeah, like you said, between... Castilla with Kubo and Rodrigo potentially playing. All the loanees we'll have out next year. We already uh, saw that Odegaard might be going to Bayer Leverkusen, Regulon potentially to Sevilla, and then obviously all the fresh faces we have in the squad this year. It's going to be a fun year for Real Madrid. There's going to be a lot to uh, to take in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm very excited about it. Uh, and frankly, having a lot of coaching talent in the works is a really good thing for Madrid. Like having all these players coming through and assuming they can kind of break through and be good coaches or even if like one of them breaks through and becomes an elite coach it makes it that much easier when madrid is looking for their next coach right or their coach after their next coach or whatever to go and get you know this guy that they helped nurture and and teach who is now an elite coach so it's very good so it's a that is not a problem it's not even a problem i was gonna say it's a good problem to have but it's not a problem it's just good (laughs) Un- uncomplicatedly good to have lots of coaching talent in the works. All right, last question is from Adam Dorsey. He says, guys, great work on your podcast as always. Thank you. I appreciate it. Keon, your recent interviews with Kay Murray and Ray Hudson were particularly enlightening and a great listen. That's true. Shout out to both Kay and Ray for yeah, uh, coming awesome on the show. They kick ass and Keon obviously is a great interviewer. Um, my question is this. I was reflecting on the last bad season we had before this one, which I guess would I would argue was 2014-15. Although we won a record number of games in a row that season, we ended the season trophyless after capitulating when Modric went down. Do you guys feel more optimistic about next season than you did heading into the 15-16 season? Oh, man, I have a lot to say about that because heading into the 15-16 season, the Madrid fired Ancelotti and hired Rafa Benitez, and I was incredibly un, like unhappy about it. Mm-hmm. So I I actually feel better now than I did then because I I just had absolutely no confidence in the coach. I thought it was a terrible. No, that wouldn't wouldn't have that been the next year, Gabe? Because fifteen sixteen was the year. Uh... Fifteen sixteen ended with Ancelotti leaving yeah, at the end of the year. Yeah. No, fourteen fifteen. Well, I don't know. I don't remember. Oh, you're right. Um, you're right. Sorry. No, my did bad. It? Yeah, my yeah, bad. I think, my bad. Yeah, Gabe's right. Yeah, yeah you're right. And yeah, they fired him. I'm with you there, Gabe. <laughs> which is yeah. like an insane thing to do. Uh, and so right now, like Madrid is going into an season. Sure, they had a bad season and even worse, by far worse than 14-15. But they had, a, they had another bad season. But this time they have come back with their like treble Champions League in a row coach winner winning coach and a rejuvenated squad i mean i feel like it's pretty good actually i feel pretty good about it i feel i definitely feel more optimistic this season than i did that year yeah and i don't even like we didn't bring in many players that year i, I mean i think casemiro came back yeah, casemiro came back, came back. 
but who else? Like that Danilo, I guess. I think that, that was the year that. Um, I'm pretty sure that was one of the years that they did a bunch of signings of younger people. Um, um, here it were, is. They kind of didn't didn't bear fruit, or that, that didn't bear fruit immediately, but became very good. Yeah, Kovacic like, among them. So yeah, uh, Kovacic, Danilo, Kiko Casilla, Jesus Vallejo, Marco Asensio, Lucas yeah. Vasquez, uh, and then Casemiro returned from loan. Okay, yeah, yeah, see, that's a good summer. That's a really good Exodus summer. Exodus was like, so we had Iara Mendy go out, uh, Hedera, Casillas, that was the year Casillas left, and that was it. But so, yeah. and then Asensio actually went, up, went back out on loan that year, so he didn't yeah, stay in the yep. team, but he was signed. Um, yeah, it was a transition year for sure. I think the the thing that had me most pessimistic, all due respect to him, was Rafa Benitez. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. yep. The squad that, itself was pretty was, good. Yeah, the squad was really. I had no problems with the squad, but it was great. But it's just that it doesn't matter how good your squad is, it's your coach is trash. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't mean it to attack Benitez. I just think he, he just was so clearly not a good option for Real Madrid. Yeah. Um, the players had no respect for him. Yeah. yeah. I think ba- Bale was the only one who actually thrived under <laughs> Rafa. Yeah. Um, all right, guys. That is uh, the show. I hope you guys enjoyed both parts. Um, glad to be back. Um, and great talk to both of you. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Yep. Uh, talk to you all soon. Until then, a la Madrid. A la Madrid. A la Madrid.